So here we are today, and I was thinking about, of course, as you know, I, I was gone for several weeks over uh, the summer with the uh, different outreaches and things, and so coming back and jumping back into the teaching schedule, and I'm thinking, wow, could there be any heavier topics to jump into than the ones that I have been assigned. And so last week we talked about the, the difficult topic of, of adultery. And today we're going to be talking about divorce. And we read the passage there in chapter 19, but we're going to look at the fifth chapter of Matthew once again, where Jesus originally said what he, in a sense, repeated in the 19th chapter that we just looked at. So let me just once again read it and remember um, the, the, you have heard that it was said or it has been said, verse 31, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So that's where we're going to be focusing our attention today. But once again, just a quick reminder, as many will know, this is the Sermon on the Mount. We call it the Sermon on the Mount because it's a sermon that Jesus delivered on a mountainside in Galilee. And this, as we pointed out, is the teaching of Jesus on what life in his kingdom looks like. It is his description of how those who follow him will think, act, and live. And I think each week we have all used the quotation from Jochum Jeremiah. So by the time we're finished, you're going to have this, this quote memorized. But it's so good because it really encapsulates the whole thing. So I'm going to read it once again. What, what Jesus teaches in the sayings collected in the Sermon on the Mount is not a complete regulation of the life of the disciples, and it is not intended to be, rather, <clears throat> What is taught here are symptoms, signs, examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, which is still under sin, death, and the devil. You yourselves should be signs of the coming kingdom of God, signs that something has already happened. So, Jesus is laying out for us what our lives as his people are to look like and the fact that they are to be a little snapshot of the kingdom. People are, are or ideally, people ought to be able to look at the, the church, the people of God, and get an idea of what the kingdom really looks like. So here in this particular section, and this section is following uh, Jesus having clarified his relationship to the law. Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And now what we have here in this immediate section 
is that Jesus is one, correcting the wrong interpretation of God's law that was being taught by the religious leaders of the day. That's why he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Jesus is not questioning or changing what was originally said. He is correcting what was being interpreted by the present leaders of the people. And then secondly, he was reaffirming the truth of God's word for all generations. What God said then still applies today. And his kingdom people, that would be us, far from disregarding God's law, we will honor and extol it. So when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now, of course, they were, you've heard that, that it was said if, uh, regarding divorce that um, anyone who divorces his wife must give a certificate of divorce. So wh where was that said? Let, let's look at both the law and the prophets and just just quickly see what the law and the prophets had said regarding divorce. So Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, this is where this would have largely, this, this idea of the certificate of divorce, this is where it would have been drawn from. And it says this, when a man has taken a wife and married her, and it comes to pass that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and send her out of his house. So this is what the religious leaders of the day, this, this was what they would look back to and this is what they would interpret for the people at the time. But the prophets also spoke of marriage and particularly Malachi, the prophet Malachi, which is the last of the prophets in our Old Testament, chapter 2, verse 16, says this, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So this is the teaching of the Old Testament. This is just straightforward. This is, this is what the Old Testament said. Now, that brings us secondly to the interpretation of the scribes and the Pharisees. How did they interpret and apply this? And, and everything sort of hinges on this, this uh, one term, an uncleanness. So divorce is permitted, Moses says, if a man finds an uncleanness in his wife. Now, prior to the life and ministry of Jesus, there were two well-known rabbinical teachers that Israel pretty much lined up under one or the other. One was named Shammai and the other was named Hallel. And Shammai was the stricter, Shalel, uh, Hallel was the 
um, was the more liberal in lots of ways. And so the, the popular teacher then would become Hillel. So Hillel would interpret the uncleanness. He would interpret the uncleanness as, as basically anything that displeased the husband. So where Shammai was more rigid, Shammai really was more accurate, I think, to what Moses intended, where it, the uncleanness was a sexual impurity. That was the idea. Uh, but Hillel expanded it. He said, well, an uncleanness can be many things. It's not limited to that. And so if a man happened to uh, burn the dinner, or if, if a woman happened to, to burn the dinner um, often, this could be considered an uncleanness. Or in some extreme interpretations, if a person found a more attractive wife, then um, the unattractiveness of the wife could be considered an uncleanness. So we have Moses, Malachi, the scribes and Pharisees. Then, of course, we have what Jesus said here. I say to you, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and anyone who marries her or marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this passage here, verses 31 and 32, is not all that Jesus or the New Testament scriptures would uh, say on the subject, but here, in his immediate context, Jesus only says this. So it, it's interesting. Someone pointed this out that all of the, all of the different things, like Jesus you know, earlier, he had said, "You shall." You have heard that it was said, "You shall not murder." But I say to you, and then he goes on to give instruction on how to deal with uh, the things that might uh, precipitate murder. Uh, then with adultery, likewise, you have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a woman to lust after her, and then he goes on to give instruction, if your eye offends you, pluck it out and so forth. But what some have pointed out is how here Jesus doesn't, he, he doesn't say anything beyond it. He, he just simply gives a, a very um, hard word and then leaves it at that. And I think that there is a reason, a specific reason for that. And this is the reason. Jesus, here Jesus is speaking to a particular mindset. And he's really speaking to a particular group of people. He's speaking to these religious leaders primarily who have developed this idea about divorce to accommodate their own sinful desires. So Jesus, with this blunt, pointed, and unqualified statement on divorce, here's what he's doing. 
he's putting a check on the devastation being experienced by the poor women who were the victims of the no-fault divorce laws. That's what this basically was. But it leaned heavily in the favor of the man. These no-fault divorce laws promoted by many of the religious leaders of the day. That's what Jesus is doing. It's, it's a very, like I said, it's very blunt. It's very straightforward. It's very, um, it, it's an unqualified statement. But when you look at the, the, the entirety of the teaching of Jesus and the apostles on the subject of divorce, it is qualified. There are other things that will be taken into consideration for us to come to a true biblical understanding of what God's heart and mind are regarding divorce and those who are divorced. But here, it is, it is unqualified. And like I said, it's for the specific reason of dealing with them. Now, this is an important thing to note as well because Jesus says this, and this has been perplexing for many, he says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of sexual immorality, and the NIV says makes her the victim of adultery, really the, the, the correct uh, reading is causes her to commit adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So that sounds, that, that just sounds so unfair if you think about it. So here's a man, and he he initiates the divorce and sends his wife away, but then she ends up being guilty of adultery? That doesn't sound right. And you're right, that doesn't sound right. And that's not right, because that's not what is intended by what Jesus is saying. When Jesus says that divorce causes the wife to commit adultery, he is not condemning the innocent victim he is compounding the sin of the perpetrator. He's basically saying to the person who is initiating the, the divorce, he's basically saying, you're not only committing adultery yourself, you are forcing somebody into a situation and that is going to land on your head, not on theirs. So this is a very sharp word that Jesus is giving here. Now, later, as we've already read the passage that we read together, Jesus would make it clear that their interpretation of God commanding them to divorce their wives was a deliberate distortion of what the law had said. They said Moses commanded us. So they, were, they took it as an obligation. You know, we, Moses commanded this. And so they saw it as something that was justifiable. But Jesus said, no, God permitted. This was not ever God's actual intention, but God permitted this. And why did he permit it? He permitted it because of the hardness of their hearts. So Jesus then reminded them that divorce was never in God's original plan. Now, one more quick side note. Although all the women could and did divorce their husbands at the time, it was rare. 
It did happen, but it was rare. Divorce was almost always initiated by the man, and as has always been the case, done violence to its victims. That's what Malachi was referring to, or that's what the Lord was referring to when he spoke through Malachi. The Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion, companion and your wife by covenant for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce for it covers one's garment with violence. Treachery, notice the terminology here. Treachery, violence, unfaithfulness, covenant breaking, all attitudes and actions completely incongruent with the Lord and his people. So this, all of this, I entitled the message Divorce Then and Now. So all of this is then. Everything I've just said applies to what the situation was at the time. So the question then is, but what about now? What are we in the 21st century to think of marriage, divorce, remarriage, etc.? Uh, this is this is difficult. This is very challenging. Now, divorce was in the first century among the people of Israel. Divorce was. Uh, out of control and that's what that's what Jesus is addressing there and and we could say the same thing is true in our time now statistically in the United States one out of every two marriages fail that is that is the current statistic one out of every two marriages fail just 50 years ago or so, that was a, a, a radically different statistic. Now, I have often heard this, and I just want to set the record straight. I have often heard that the divorce rate in the church is equal to the divorce rate in the culture. That is not true, yeah, although it's said over and over again. When they do these kinds of surveys, you know, they, oftentimes they're surveying people uh, and they're asking them, what is your religious affiliation? They say Christian. They might go to church once every 10 years. And yes, they've been divorced, so okay, they get, they're, they're part of the, the survey. But the truth of the matter is, no, the divorce rate is much less among those who consider themselves to truly be followers of Jesus, those who take his word seriously, those who seek to live out their faith consistently. The, the, the divorce rate is is much less, but it is still much higher than it should be based on the teaching of Jesus. So part of the problem could be that we have lost sight, forgotten what marriage is even all about. What is the meaning of marriage? Why is there marriage? Well, the origin of marriage is the place we need to start. And Jesus reminded us in the passage that we read. 
Have you not read that in the beginning, God created them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. So what the scripture teaches is that marriage originated with God. Timothy Keller, Kathy Keller in their book on marriage said this, marriage did not evolve in the late Bronze Age as a way to determine property rights. If you talk to secular-minded people and ask about marriage, marriage is just a social construct. It's just something that it developed for this reason or that reason in society, and it developed in different places in different ways. Uh, the biblical picture is much different. The biblical picture is that it originated with God. Uh, the Kellers say, at the climax of the Genesis account, of creation, we see God bringing a woman and a man together to unite them in marriage. The Bible begins with a wedding, Adam and Eve, and ends in the book of Revelation with a wedding of Christ and the church. Marriage is God's idea. So since marriage is God's idea, Humans are not free to tinker with it, to adjust it, to reinterpret it. And boy, our generation has done that more than any previous generation. So marriage originates with God. But then a second question is what, what is the purpose? What is the primary purpose of marriage? There are so many things that you could say, so many things that have been said historically in response to this question. But I think the primary purpose of marriage, now God says in, in the creation account, you remember God, Adam is created, all the animals are created, but the Lord says this one thing. He says, it is not good. Everything was good except one thing, man's loneliness. It is not good that man should be alone. And so God says, I'm going to create him. I'm going to create for him a helper. I'm gonna create for him someone to come alongside and I think the first and primary purpose of marriage is companionship. Companionship, it's, it's not good that, that man should be alone. So God's going to create a companion and that is exactly what he does. Now, like I said, throughout history, there have been all different kinds of in, interpretations as to what the, the primary purpose of marriage is. And I think if you, if you put anything else as the primary purpose, I think you, you bring confusion into the marital relationship. So some have said the primary purpose of marriage is procreation, for example. Well, that creates a big problem for people who can't have children. So what does that mean? Their marriage doesn't really have a primary purpose. It doesn't really mean as much because they can't have children. So I think that that would be a mistake. And along with that idea that marriage is primarily for procreation, that would also then 
mean that the sexual encounter is primarily for procreation. So unless you're planning on having children, then sex would become taboo. This has all happened in history. This is not theoretical, like if this, then that. No, this has been the case. So companionship is, that's the number one purpose. Spiritual companionship, that, that two might come together with Christ as the center of their lives and partner together in their walk and, and service to Jesus. Mental and emotional companionship. Friendship. Someone to know and to be close to and to share uh, the deep and beautiful things of life. Emotional, mental. And then, of course, physical companionship as well. And then, of course, procreation is a part, but it's not the primary purpose. Procreation, uh, God does say to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. God's plan is to create a community, and he's going to do that on the family level, and the families then will develop into communities and into societies and into cultures and into civilizations and so forth. So procreation is part of it. And then I think one other thing we could add is that marriage is intended to display to the world the relationship between God and his people. Now, it's not by accident that the Lord refers to himself as the husband of Israel. And Israel is the wife of the Lord. And then, of course, that is taken over into the New Covenant as well. And Paul, when he's describing in Ephesians 5 all of the aspects of the marital relationship there, and he quotes from Genesis, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. He then says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So marriage is to be a picture. Just like we said earlier, the church, our lives as, as God's people and our lives collectively as God's people are to be a picture of the kingdom. Our marital relationships are to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. So that's, in a nutshell, very briefly, very quickly, that is the, the, the biblical overview of um, the origin and the purpose of marriage. But then that brings us to divorce. So divorce has happened from the early days of human history and we see that God is the one who puts a limit to it, but he does allow it. But that's the point. He allows it. He, he permits it, but he says the reason he permits it is because of 
the hardness of the heart. So as I see it, there are three biblical reasons for divorce. Three biblical reasons. Number one, and Jesus makes it clear here, it's infidelity. If anyone divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality. So infidelity, uh, I think, has been clear for most in their understanding of this uh, all the way along, that this is the, the one crystal clear reason why people can legitimately divorce if the marriage covenant is violated. That's number one. Secondly, abandonment, I think, would have to be included. And now Paul, as, as I said earlier, Jesus, you know, he, he just makes this statement. In order to understand the whole picture of what God has to say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, you can't take just one passage. You're going to have to take the totality of what Jesus and the apostles said. Because, of course, the apostles are the ones who are inspired by the Spirit to give the fuller understanding of things that Jesus just gave us the kernel for. So if we were to just take Matthew 5, for example, or even Matthew 19, or the other places in the gospel where it's recorded that Jesus said this, then we would be left with the only real basis for divorce, at least according to Jesus, would be infidelity. But again, then we know that the apostles were appointed by the Lord to, to come and to give the fuller story. So Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth in the seventh chapter, Paul says this. He's speaking to He's speaking to the Corinthians. He's speaking to Gentiles, former pagans, people who have come out of a world that has no connection with the God of Israel or the commands that the God of Israel has given to his people. And so there are no real hard, fast rules about any of this stuff in Gentile culture. There are certain things that would be Probably this is the way most people look at it, and maybe if you did it differently, there would be a little bit of shame or something like that. But, but there were no hard, fast rules like you had laid out in the law. So Paul is talking to those kind of people, and he, he's talking specifically to those who are believers now, but yet they find themselves married to unbelievers. And so that's the context of 1 Corinthians 7, or, or part of 1 Corinthians 7, and he's giving them instruction. So there he says, if the unbeliever departs, let them depart. So to depart means to leave you. So this would be the idea of abandonment. That would be the second reason. But I think that there's a third reason and logic would tell you, or common sense would tell you, that there must be another reason. And I, I do believe that Paul touches on it in 1 Corinthians 7 as well. And that would be abuse. Now, sadly, I have heard from people who have lived in abusive situations that they were told by their pastor 
or somebody in church leadership that they were to remain in the abusive situation because unless there was adultery, they really had no way out of the marriage. I, for the life of me, can't imagine that God would counsel someone to stay in a situation where they are endangered, where perhaps the lives of their children are endangered. I don't think that would be the case at all. But I think Paul even addresses it indirectly in 1 Corinthians 7. Listen to what he says. In 1 Corinthians 7, he is, again, he's talking about the unbeliever married to the, the believer married to the unbeliever. He says, if any believer has an unbelieving spouse and they, here's the key, they are willing to live with them, let them not depart. The key is willing to live. And I believe that what Paul is insinuating there is that they are willing to live with them by the fact that they live peacefully, respectively, non-abusively with them. I think if a person is abusive toward their spouse, regardless of what they're saying verbally, their actions are saying, I am not willing to live with you under normal, peaceable, respectful conditions. Now, some would argue and say, well, yeah, but that's, that's only like the unbeliever. But, you know, th this guy's a, he's a Christian. This guy beating his wife is a Christian. This guy verbally assaulting his wife, he's a Christian. This guy abusing his children, he's a Christian. No, he's not a Christian. Or if he is a Christian, he's a really bad Christian <laughs> and needs to have a wake-up call. You see, this, this is the, the reality. So these reasons, and I, I want to say too, and I'm, I'm going to share a quote in a few minutes that I think there's, there's, so, there's so much nuance to this. Now, I have to confess that at one time in my life where when I was younger and less <laughs> mature and less experienced uh, in life and everything else, um, I, you know, I read these passages and I took them very rigidly and I sought to apply them very rigidly. And I think I created so much trouble for people unintentionally. I had the right intention. I thought, okay, God, it's me and you against the world of the divorcee. And I don't think I, I really did anybody uh, any great service by doing that. So I, lo I long ago repented of that, asked for forgiveness where um, need be. But, but these, are, these are nuanced things. And I do think that the Lord calls us to have a, um, a, a mature perspective that is rooted solidly in Scripture, but is, is also simultaneously sensitive to the Spirit and the wisdom that the Spirit would give. So, so these are the, the, the biblical reasons that I can see with, with nuance um, for divorce. And, and, of course, when these things happen, then 
divorce is, is legitimate. But I think the problem, one of the problems we have today is that people are divorcing for all the wrong reasons. So many people are divorcing for the wrong reasons. I read an article yesterday by, uh, put out through the Gospel Coalition uh, website, and the, the, the article was entitled, Five Bad Reasons for Divorce. And let me just read them. And I agree 100%. These are, these are not reasons for divorce. Number one, falling out of love. You know how many Christians are getting divorced today because they oh, I've fallen out of love. I, don't, I just don't love my husband or wife anymore. That's not a reason. That's not a legitimate reason. Or we're incompatible. I, I, I've always was looking for a soulmate. I just realized that my husband or wife isn't my soulmate. We don't have that kind of compatibility. I need that, that soulmate, so I'm gonna go on a search for that. It's not the reason. Financial struggles, unhappiness, boredom. These are reasons that people are divorcing today. Now, they're not only bad reasons, they are unacceptable reasons. But listen, I, I understand that that these kinds of things are real, but rather than saying that, I, well, I've fallen out of love, so I guess the next step is divorce, I have to say, no, I've fallen out of love, so the next step is, Jesus, help me to do what needs to be done so that my heart can change, so that their heart can change, so that we can go on in obedience to you and experience a blessing on the other side of this. And you might need help with that. You might need counseling with that. You might need someone to sit down with you with more experience in life and talk with you and point you to the scripture and pray for you. And that's understandable. Life is complicated. Life is challenging, and we go through these kinds of things. But we have to realize that even though these are real experiences, they're not the basis upon which we can decide to dissolve a marriage and move on to another one. So that brings us to the issue of remarriage. And this, there's so much. I think confusion, misunderstanding in people's lives over this particular subject. So I, I wanna quote, one writer wrote this on this challenging subject and it's worth quoting. It's a, it's a little bit long, but bear with me. And, and let me read it, it says this. It says, we should not interpret Jesus legalistically on these matters. Paul did not. He allowed divorce not only in the case of sexual unfaithfulness, but also in the case of a spouse not being a believer and separating. The covenantal structure of marriage is so binding that only a fundamental and irreparable breach of the marriage covenant can morally justify divorce. Let me read that again. The covenantal structure of marriage is so binding that only a fundamental and irreparable breach of the marriage covenant can morally justify divorce. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is, is a, 
a deep binding relationship that we willingly enter into. But when we willingly enter into that covenant and when we make the covenantal promises, God fully expects us to keep our promise. See, this is serious with God, and he's made us serious moral beings, and he expects that we be people who follow through, especially in this regard with the covenant. But then he goes on and he addresses this writer. He addresses um, remarriage. As for remarriage, here the history of legalism has had devastating consequences. Close reading of Paul's treatment of divorce in 1 Corinthians 7 helps us see that Jesus did not intend to, in, to bar all remarriage or classify all remarried persons as adulterers. He did intend to stop his hearers from finding false comfort in legal procedures that enable covenant breaking. A pattern of physical and emotional abuse, the steady refusal of, refusal of conjugal relations, the willing mistreatment or abuse of the couple's children, the refusal to contribute any effort to the shared family labors, and the creation of, envir of an environment of unremitting hostility or hatred are all examples of violations of the covenant promises made on the wedding day. The circumstances in which such promise breaking could create sufficient suffering to morally justify divorce cannot be determined by way of a general statement. Such circumstances exist. So what he's saying here is that, in, in some ways what he's saying here is that every situation has all different kinds of complexities. And there's not just one simple, here, let me read you this verse, that's the end of the story. Just, just do what the verse says. Jesus says, if you remarry, you commit adultery. You can't remarry. You'll be committing adultery. That's not the way to interpret Jesus or the rest of the New Testament writers. And it's not the way to help solve the, the real problems that arise in our complicated lives. So... In closing, let's think about the way of Jesus in marriage. And remember the context here is the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the context is, is following Jesus. This is, this, is a, what the, this is what members of the kingdom are going to be striving for. This is what we're going to be Seeking as we seek to be Jesus-formed people. That, you see, that really, that is the bigger picture here. Because being Jesus-formed people is going to deal with those root causes of 
these problems like adultery and divorce. So the way of Jesus in marriage, covenantal faithfulness. Covenantal faithfulness. Jesus demonstrated covenantal faithfulness. He came in covenant with the Father to save the world. And guess what? There came at least one moment where Jesus wasn't feeling it. He was not feeling. Father, if this cup can pass from me, please take it away. He wasn't feeling it, but the covenantal faithfulness kept him to the task. Covenantal faithfulness, sacrifice. Jesus calls us to sacrifice. He calls us to mercy and to forgiveness and to tenderheartedness. You see, the whole problem, Jesus said, with the divorce issue was because of the hardness of your heart. Our hearts can become hard. We can become hardened toward each other through unforgiveness, resentment, bitterness. And these are the things that are not obviously the way of Jesus. These are the things that we need to seek him and allow his spirit to deal with these things in our life. Now, I, I wanna just hear finally, I, I wanna say that obviously what Jesus is primarily dealing with here is he's, he's addressing the perpetrator. In every divorce there, you know, sometimes it, it, there's a shared responsibility, obviously. I mean, I, I, know, I know people who have mutually committed adultery. One person committed adultery and then the other one said, well, I'm gonna pay you back by committing adultery as well. So you have two adulterous situations in a marriage. So where, where does the primary responsibility lie there? These are some of those webs that are so difficult to untangle. But for the, for the victim of an injustice, God's word is a word of grace. God's word is a God of, uh, of God, God's word is a word of, of uh, promise and it's, it's a word that would just say, move forward in life and be blessed. But for the perpetrator, it's different. Now, for the perpetrator, is there, is there not just forgiveness, but is there a, a path forward in life, even with a, with a remarriage? in the case of a perpetrator? Well, these are difficult questions, but I think the first question is really repentance. The first question is really repentance. Has there been repentance? Now, some would understand repentance to be you have to go back and be reconciled and be restored and live within that marital relationship again. Sometimes that is absolutely impossible. I don't think that that is necessary for repentance. 
Repentance is something that really, first and foremost, is before God. It's basically saying, God, I sinned. I sinned. I take full responsibility for what has been done. Please forgive me. And sincerely meaning that. That's what repentance is in this context. And then there is confession. Then there is owning it to those that were victimized by your sin. No longer putting the blame somewhere else, but confessing, no, I did this. I brought this on myself. You know, some years ago, my dad, who left my mom when I was seven years old, he said to me, he said, son, I just want to tell you that I was 100% wrong and your mother was guiltless. She was faultless. You know, he owned it. He fully owned it. He confessed it. Restoration is sometimes part of this as well. Because in our self-justification, we so often try to tear the other person down. And so confession would also lead to restoration in some sense that, you know, maybe there can be a peaceable relationship. Never the same, obviously, but still peaceable. And the final thing I would say in this is perhaps reparation. Perhaps there is something that needs to be paid back. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, how many women I've talked to whose husbands have divorced them, moved on, and refused to pay child support and go to church with their new wife. See, that's a person who hasn't repented. Reparations means, you know what, I did a lot of damage and I, I, whatever I can do to, to just try to fix that. Now, here's the final word, the good news in all of this. And, and all of this is very, uh, you know, in many ways it's, very, it's gonna land in different places with those hearing it. But remember this, Jesus gives us grace and power to do all that he calls us to do as we follow him. Jesus is in the business of fixing people. And he wants to fix our brokenness. And we must allow him to do it by understanding what he requires in these things and then doing what he tells us to do.